0: Thank you. we'll be discussing about the critical importance of data science and analytics together with its present challenges and opportunities. For today's podcast episode, We'll be talking to Dominic Leggett, more widely known as Doc, the founder and chief technology officer of Serialytics Research Services, based in Manila. He will share with us his valuable insights on the fundamentals of data science and analytics in the context and perspective from the Philippines. So let's get started. Thank you for listening to FinCircle, and welcome to our podcast. As the role of digital technology becomes multifold in every sector, it generates huge amounts of information that can yield valuable insights about the specific field. And this has led to a huge impact in the data industry for the last 10 years. However, data collection needs to be supplemented with its analysis for obtaining decision-making insights. Data analytics helps businesses and industries make sense of the vast volumes of information for further growth and development. Investing in analytics is the difference between successful and failing companies in the present and the years to come. Data analytics is a relatively new term for many people. It essentially refers to all the processes and tools required to process a set of data and interpret important insights from them. Analytics, on the other hand, is a broader term that includes the various tools and processes being used to analyze the data. Analytics tools can either be qualitative, such as quality of life surveys in the medical field, or can also be quantitative, such as statistical tools or software. They extract and bifurcate useful data from unnecessary information and analyze to come up with patterns and numerical data that can help in making a profitable change. Data analytics is an integral component of making strategies in all major organizations as it helps them to predict customer trends and behaviors, increase business productivity, and make evidence-backed decisions, among others. There are several methods that you can use for processing any set of data. One of them is what we call data mining and this breaks down huge reserves of raw data into small chunks of information that can be usable. They also identify anomalies in groups of data and assess the dependencies between different data groups to come up with correlations between them. Data mining is also used for determining behavioral patterns in patients data in many clinical trials. The other one is what we call text analytics. And it's being used to develop autocorrect for your phone and predictive typing, for your emails, for instance. It also involves processing huge chunks of uh, unstructured text to develop algorithms. It also includes linguistic analysis, pattern recognition in textual data, and filtering out junk emails from useful ones. Another one is what we call data visualization, and this involves laying out data in a visual format for a better assessment. It also helps make complex data understandable. Examples of which includes the bar charts, histograms, graph, and pie charts. Another one is what we call business intelligence. And this involves transforming data into actionable insights for a business. These results are used for making business strategies such as product placement and pricing. It also involves using visual tools such as heat maps, pivot tables, and mapping techniques. From here, we'll be able to see that data analytics is an essential asset for business organizations for obtaining a competitive advantage. Here also are some few sectors where data analytics can somehow make a difference. Product development is one of them. And data analytics enables both prediction and knowledge discovery capabilities. It helps in understanding the current state of the business or process and provides a solid foundation to predict future outcomes. Data analytics enables businesses to understand the current market scenario and change the process or trigger a need for new product development that matches the market needs. Another one is what we call targeted content. Knowing what customers want beforehand makes marketing campaigns more customer-oriented. It enables companies to customize their advertisements to target a segment of your entire customer base. It also helps them to determine which segment of customer base will respond best to the campaign. Moreover, it also saves money on the cost of convincing a customer to make the purchase and improves overall efficiency of the marketing efforts. The other one is also important because this highlights operational efficiency. Data analytics can also help companies identify other potential opportunities to streamline operations or maximize their profits. It helps identify potential problems, eliminating the process of waiting for them to occur and then take actions on the same. This allows companies to see which operations have yielded the best overall results under various conditions and identify which operational area are error-prone, and which one needs to be improved. In summary, we can see that most of the data analytics mentioned are very useful and has been developed into algorithms by a machine learning methodology which is widely used in most industries and business organizations globally, primarily intended for work optimization. In today's podcast episode, we've invited Dominic Liggett, or most widely known as Doc, the founder and chief technology officer of Serolytics Research Services, as well as lecturer and advisor for the Master in Applied Analytics at the University of Asia and the Pacific. Doc has nearly 20 years of relevant experience in data-driven decision-making, data management, in the field of analytics. He is also a founding board of trustees member and treasurer for the Analytics Association of the Philippines, where he promotes data ethics and analytics consultation. We're so excited to have you, Doc, and welcome to FinCircle. Hey, happy to be here. Let's probably start by defining on what is data science, and its significant importance in our present digital economy?
1: Yeah. So, I mean, data science uh, has only been, I would say, uh, as a term, has only been widely used since 2012 when there was this Harvard Business Review article uh, that I believe was written by Tom Davenport and DJ Patil. Uh, and they said the data scientist is the sexiest job of the 21st century. And I think that. That's what got the ball rolling. So the way I would define data science is basically the practice of analyzing and processing data to gain insights that can bring value to uh, your institution or your business. It's actually the intersection of, I would say, maybe three major disciplines. One discipline is uh, computer science. So more often than not, data scientists are people who use uh, code and programming languages to extract uh, process uh, and create insights out of data. So you create algorithms, uh, models. And so apart from computer science, uh, a big part of it is also statistics and and math. So you definitely need statistical analysis to interpret these models, uh, come up with uh, interpretations and forecasts that can help guide uh, business and institutions and then the third aspect is domain uh, knowledge so data science isn't you know you don't practice data science in a vacuum it's always with context to like a particular domain right like uh, a big part let's say in the commercial space a big a big user of data science is usually marketing so people who want to predict what users uh, what customers want to buy what prices uh, look attractive how do you prevent uh, your customers from from leaving your customer base, basically churning, how uh, do you increase loyalty? So marketing is a big user. Uh, finance as well. So I, I first encountered data science the way I would define it now in, in the financial markets. I used to be a, a trader and I used algorithmic uh, models to, to help me execute buy and sell decisions. And uh, so apart from that, also there's a, there's a broader practice around operations. So, I would say practices uh, such as operations management, Six Sigma, I mean, you might be familiar with some of these terms, uh, operations research, uh, they're actually now f- uh, more and more falling under the banner of data science. So so data science is really interesting because it, it aggregates a lot of previously separate disciplines like data mining, data analysis, database management, uh, statistics under one roof and and a lot of people are coming into the field uh you know armed with programming skills and combining that with math and statistical knowledge and they can use that to uh, uh create business uh, insights so yeah it's uh it's only very recent the term data scientist hasn't been around for that long but yeah it's uh, the growth in that sector has been massive
0: what motivates you and your co-founders to start cerlytics
1: yeah, so uh, my startup is called Uh It's it's actually a fusion of two words, so Cirrus clouds and analytics, right? So when I first thought of it uh, back in 2016, I was uh, actually based in San Francisco, working for my former employer, and uh, as a consultant and a data scientist. And I was thinking about how do you, how do we bring Uh, you know, stuff like predictive analytics and data science down to the level of small and medium-sized companies who normally, you know, don't have the massive budgets of, you know, huge organizations. And my first thought was most analytics practice at that time, you know, it wasn't too long ago. Most of it was really on-prem, the the way we IT practitioners would talk about it. So it's really uh, localized in your laptop or, you know, you might have a data center. And one of the disruptive innovations back then uh, that right now everyone takes for granted is cloud computing. So Amazon Web Services wasn't as widely used in 2016. Nowadays, you know, it's almost a joke if you're not going to put anything on Amazon or I guess Microsoft Azure. So that was the impetus. I said, I could significantly bring down the costs of doing uh, analytics by doing it on the cloud and offering it as a service to, to companies. So that was the idea. And then later it kind of evolved. So we officially kicked it off early twenty seventeen, uh, and we were doing commercial analytics work for more than you know more than a year, uh, almost two years. And then sometime late twenty eighteen, we started thinking about uh, is there more to the practice of analytics because more and more companies were starting to you know come into the market, uh, and as I'm sure you you've already noticed, most major universities are now offering a degree of some sort in data science or data analytics or big data, and I felt that you know the the space, although the demand continues to be strong, the space was going to get crowded very soon. So it was sometime around uh, twenty eighteen when we started thinking about making a pivot, which we started in twenty nineteen, uh, and the major pivot was we would be exploring the social development sector. So looking at what can data do uh, to basically help you know society at large? So we'd be instead of solving marketing and finance problems, we'd be looking at you know stuff like public health or food security or even human rights. We didn't know you know we didn't know how to get started, uh, but you know it was in twenty nineteen when we started to get our you know our first breaks. In, in this kind of this pivot when we started joining some hackathons so I think the two hackathons that we joined and one that made a big difference was there was a there was this hackathon called Break the Fake. It was held in Manila in two separate uh, events uh, and it was a uh, basically a hackathon convened by the US uh, State Department and YC and the objective was how do you use data to fight fake news? So we put together a solution that allowed uh, users to track, uh, you know, conspiracies online. You know, would be looking for common agents. You'd be looking at, uh, you know, common owners of websites, common uh, common users. Uh, and we were actually pleasantly surprised that we we actually beat uh, teams in Malaysia and Indonesia. So some of these other teams were deploying chatbots and all sorts of uh, blockchain solutions. And we had a very straightforward network uh, database and artificial intelligence. And that actually, you know, uh, won the grand prize. So I thought uh, that was the first time I thought, this was sometime in August in 2019. That was the first time I thought, hey, look, maybe it is possible to, to bring our skills from commercial analytics into social impact. And then sometime in October, there's this annual hackathon called the NASA Space Apps Challenge. So and this is organized by NASA, and you have participants from all over the world. And what they do is they offer their satellite data that uh, they've accumulated over over decades, and give you know and give free access to participants, and then they direct you to try to achieve uh, you know solutions for social issues like uh, health or flooding or hazards. And in 2019, the Philippines was in the middle of you know. It's worst dengue epidemic in five years. So no one no one was talking about COVID-19 back then. Uh, and we thought we maybe we can try to figure out a solution to that to address dengue. So what we did was we tried to put together reports of dengue cases and deaths uh, and tried to 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 marry it with climate data, Google searches and satellite data to be able to not just predict the trend of the dengue, but also find out where the the breeding the habitats of mosquitoes would be. So if as you know some of you might know, mosquitoes breed in usually breed in stagnant water. And we found you know research that that showed that you could detect stagnant water hotspots from space using certain satellite, you know, indicators. So we put that together in one solution, put it forward. And again, we were pleasantly surprised that not only did we win the the Manila leg of the of the challenge, but in February of 2020, we we got uh, awarded one of the global one of the global winners uh, over you know more than 29,000 participants, and we were one of the six global winners. We got the best use of data award, and and even that solution uh, got awarded again as late as November of 2020. We got. Uh, there's this uh, organization called the Group on Earth Observations, so it includes NASA, the European Space Agency, the Japanese Space Agency and all these other satellite uh, organizations and this and they uh, every year they award what's called the EO for SDG or the Earth Observations for Sustainable Development Goals awards to institutions who are able to use satellite data for basically social development which is the sustainable development goals and we were one of the awardees in 2020. So yeah, it was it's an interesting, you know, shift from basically working in an, an IT job, starting a startup, doing some commercial work. And then now we're fully into the social impact sector, you know. So it's still Serialytics, but it's now Serialytics for social impact.
0: What are the challenges and opportunities that somehow faces the data analytics of today?
1: Well, I think um analytics is exciting if you have good data and i think that's uh any practitioner will tell you that's always the problem uh trying to get access to data trying to get access to good quality data and i think i would add to that uh there's an uh there's been an escalating i would say concern over data privacy and security and although on the one hand we really need to be mindful of that because you know uh as you can see with you know this the stuff happening in social networks like Facebook, and Twitter, the privacy of people is under attack. And that's another area that we're also looking at from an ethics standpoint. But with the increased scrutiny and in privacy and security, it's ironically actually made it you know more difficult to perform data science because now you have to go through all these approvals at least within a company and make sure that you know you're not uh, compromising uh, people's privacy. And I think, you know, hand in hand with that is there's also an increased, uh, I would say, vigilance uh, against discrimination because a lot of, you know, a lot of the discrimination is already happening online. And some of that is also data-driven discrimination, like people, uh, facial recognition algorithms are not able to recognize, let's say, ethnic minorities, or uh, your data can be hacked and compromised. So... The more you tighten on that side of the fence, the harder it is for people to use data you know, to, to come up with meaningful insights. And actually, that's the biggest criticism of, let's say, companies like Facebook. They use data science to, 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 to get patterns of behavior from user data, you know, with or without your permission, apparently is the issue. And then they use that with really devastating effect. They're able to predict your preferences. They're able to influence you. Uh, I'm sure you've heard of companies like Cambridge Analytica and they, uh, you know, uh, were accused of using Facebook data in in terms of moving elections. Uh, And then you have algorithms online that basically alter the news feed on your, let's say, on your Facebook, depending on your preferences. So you get caught in these echo chambers. Uh, So you, you tend to see more content that you've engaged in in the past, and that's, Allowed, you know, viral content that advocates hate speech and fake news. So it's a really interesting landscape we have today compared to when we were starting out in twenty sixteen, where pretty much people were kind of gung ho and excited to apply all these new methods and technologies. Now we're seeing the other side, which is the dark side of you know using algorithms and uh, data science, because uh, if we're not careful, it can it can be harmful and it can also be used to harm people. Uh, Deliberately, and you know that's the danger.
0: How do you foresee the big data and open data space in the next few years?
1: It's really hard to predict just how fast things can develop. But like, for example, if you're familiar with the story of AlphaGo, uh, so this was the artificial intelligence that beat. Uh, I think it was Lisa Sedol, who was uh, one of the best Go players in the world in the game of Go. So Go is like kind of the equivalent of you know, chess or checkers in, in kind of the Eastern world. You know, China, Korea, Japan, they all, they're, they're all, they all play Go a lot. And it's you know, purportedly more complex than chess, more complex than checkers. There are more possible moves in Go than there are atoms in the universe, according to some people. And an AI was able to beat a human being at it for a long time. Uh, you know, uh, some of these games, including chess, for example. You know, a couple of decades ago, there was that highly publicized uh, chess match between uh, Kasparov and and IBM's uh, Deep Blue. And I think uh, Deep Blue uh, uh, got got Kasparov to a draw or something like that. It was able to beat Kasparov and you know, over several matches. And at that time that was a big shock. up, up to that point, no, no computer algorithm had ever beaten a chess master or a grandmaster in chess and then now you know computers are able to beat humans all the time. And the reason why I'm bringing up these two you know algorithms is these are the products of big data and data science and it hasn't taken very long for you know AI machine learning and data science to progress. That now, problems previously thought were impossible to solve using automated algorithms are now falling down one by one. Uh, so, if that's a trend, you know, that's probably a trend that will continue to happen over the next few years. We'll continue to see new advances uh, in machine learning and data science that will start to conquer problems that were previously intractable. Uh, by humans, like uh, the same team that invented AlphaGo, very recently uh, came up with another algorithm called AlphaFold, which was able to crack protein folding, which is this complex problem. I'm not an expert in it, but it's a complex problem in biochemistry, and an algorithm was now able to do it much better than you know humans. So I think that's that's kind of the, if ever the trend. If I'm going to make a safe prediction, that's probably going to continue, and the reason for that is processing power has increased so microchips keep getting smaller and smaller laptops get you know servers and laptops keep getting more powerful uh, you now have uh, you know graphics cards like the company Nvidia uh, before you had GPUs which were or graphics processing units these are graphics cards you put in your computer and before the real main ish- reason you do that is so you can render computer graphics and games, Better and faster, but people in machine learning realize that you can use those same GPUs as processing, uh, processing units to run your algorithms. So these were algorithms that previously required like a supercomputer to run, and now it runs on a GPU. And the GPUs are getting better and faster, uh, every every year. So I think that trend will continue. Computing power will increase, and at the same time, data continues to to increase. So we now have Pretty much the the, effectively the brain of the world in the internet images text articles social media obviously is a big source of data and you know every day we generate tons of that data uh, you know Uh, so if you combine a lot of data and powerful algorithms i mean the result will be you know can only be uh, you know uh, magical (laughs) i guess from from this perspective we'll see Automation and and artificial intelligence achieve things that we never thought possible. One area that's a, just I think is just a few years from being cracked is fully autonomous self driving cars. You know you have companies like Tesla, and you know several other companies that are trying to crack the self driving car problem. And uh, I think now Tesla cars can drive pretty safely in California. You know they've already you know trained uh, algorithms that can that can understand the road networks there. And it won't be long before these algorithms can pretty much understand every road network anywhere in the world So you'll be able to let your car drive everywhere. And maybe even in the crazy streets of Manila, we'll be seeing self-driving cars. So I think that's just inevitable.
0: What differentiates Serialytics as compared to your adversaries?
1: Well, we don't really have, I would say... I think adversaries is too heavy a word uh, competitors maybe. The, it's interesting because when we were starting out, um, there were already commercial analytics uh, companies, big and small. So we in a way were kind of competing with you know the big the big folks like SAS, uh, uh, IBM, Oracle. I mean these were the big data warehousing and analytics companies back in the day and they're still around. But I guess as a startup, our advantage was we're more agile, definitely we're much cheaper and we're able to cater to the customer. So that was kind of our competitive advantage. And then as I mentioned earlier, one trend that we began to see coming into 2018 and 2019 is more and more um, universities were starting to offer big data and data analytics courses in their curricula. I was actually a co-developer of a master's degree in the University of Asia and the Pacific precisely to produce more analytics professionals. So as a consultant, that was actually bad news for us because effectively we were minting our, our competition. So when we made the decision to move into the social sector, social development sector, it was partly driven by competitive pressures. We thought um, it won't be long before these uh, you know, students of these degrees start graduating And uh, companies that would have been our clients would probably put a pause on consultation and start hiring them instead in house. You know, it's obviously easier and maybe potentially cheaper to have your own in house data scientist, you know, with a few exceptions. So we thought it's probably better we go into a place where data isn't really being used as much. uh, And more importantly, areas where, you know, currently, like your average, I would say, data science practitioner or data science student, really isn't looking to do social good. I mean, I could be, I could be completely off, but I think in general everyone's looking to enter some big company and get paid a lot of money. I mean, it's perfectly fine, of course, but from a competitive standpoint, I'd rather go where kind of like we're the only fish in the ocean. So that's maybe our biggest, uh, you know, differentiator. We're we're very agile. We're able to shift focus, and to my knowledge, we're the only data analytics company, at least where 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 I operate, that focuses solely on social development. So we don't pitch to you know the usual companies. Uh, our clients tend to be uh, governments, uh, research institutions, uh, bilateral organizations. You know, like. WHO and you know uh, USAID and uh, UN, uh, so they would be the ones with the funding to you know uh, to put into these uh, problem sectors. And more and more, we're seeing areas where data can be used to to good use. Like for example, 2020 was obviously the the era of the COVID-19 pandemic, and during this time, a lot of companies actually scaled back or even shut down completely and some people lost their jobs Uh, i don't i don't make a big deal of it too much but actually 2020 was one of our best years because we we got a lot of contracts to perform data analysis for covid data analysis for food security data analysis for human rights as a result of covid so all this work was there and we were more than happy to bring our our resources and our talents to solve these problems. And I guess that's the other. I guess um, I would say maybe a differentiator is we're doing it not not really uh, primarily because we're gonna get paid. We're we're doing this job because we really deeply believe in the in the underlying in solving the underlying problems. Like definitely we're we're there to help. The Philippines and the uh, you know other countries in the world get over this crisis of you know the the pandemic, and where we can use data and analysis to help, we're more than happy to do that. We definitely believe in solving the problem of hunger and of course protecting human rights, and and data ethics, for example. So these are causes we really uh you know genuinely believe in, and I think that's what gives us the extra, I would say, the extra. Encouragement to pursue these projects towards positive outcomes.
0: Based on the recent survey conducted by Deloitte, it has been observed that uh, data analytics professionals in Asia Pacific are predominantly men, and women are still a minority. In view of this, how do you think we can bridge the gaps?
1: You know, it's it's fascinating because I I do hear about these trends. More than more, you know, uh, quite often. So when I was so before before I I got into the startup world, I was working in IT, and before IT, I spent almost thirteen years of my career in in banking. So I worked for the likes of HSBC, Australian New Zealand Bank, in in many fields, risk management uh, primarily, and analytics, and actually. Yeah, I have to I have to say this. Majority of the people I worked with in in data science and analytics were women in these companies. So I don't know, maybe we were we we're an outlier, or maybe Philippines in general is an outlier. But I think I think tech in general, like uh, web development, uh, embedded systems, data warehousing, uh, is dominated by men. But when you get into data science, I think there's a fair fair amount of women already in that sector and And that's actually very encouraging. Now, as to how we bridge the gaps, there's many ways. Um, uh, I I don't believe in like setting gender quotas and all that. I think it's really just democratizing the knowledge. So for example, one organization I work with a lot is called FTW or For the Women Foundation. So it's a a nonprofit organization and their mission is to provide free data science uh, and analytics training for women. I think you can see a lot of it's very similar to a lot of these women co- uh, coding camps and boot camps, but they focus on women primarily. And, and I think their mission is specific to women who are in career transition. So maybe they took a career break to become a mother. Now they want to come back into the mainstream and they offer these courses as a way for, you know, these women to, you know, start getting a, a second win in their careers. So that's really, really admirable. And what we do with FTW, for example, is, we provide venues for internships and projects for their students. So in fact, uh, talking about that dengue project that we did in the NASA Space Challenge. So after winning the award, we continued to do our work on dengue. And what we did was we opened that project to the FTW uh, Foundation and another group, a group of their students came and enhanced the solution that we did. So they expanded the, the coverage in terms of geographical areas, uh, they expanded the, the forecasts. They expanded the data. And that was very successful. So I guess it's really more, I don't think there's really, let's say a gender bias in terms of preventing women from entering the field. We just don't you know, provide enough opportunities for them to come in. And I guess a little bit of encouragement uh, because it's, these, these women are really, really good at what they do. And actually one of the members of that group that we offered internships to is actually working with us now on another project. So yeah, we're more than, I mean, even in Serialytics, we're about, our gender split is about 50-50 and that was not like deliberately engineered. It just happened. Like, we have equal number of men and women in our organization and we're very happy to, to say that we're quite balanced as far as gender is concerned.
0: The data ethics spectrum that you have presented during your recent forums are quite remarkable and interesting, particularly the topic about misinformation and disinformation, data poverty, digital ownership, algorithm liabilities, among others. Perhaps you can share a high-level overview of this model concept for the benefit of our global podcast listeners.
1: Yeah, so, okay, data ethics is probably another one of those terms that people are only starting to talk about. So uh, first, let's talk basics. So what is ethics? Uh, I think oftentimes you'll hear the word ethics conflated with uh, law or compliance, uh, also religion and morality. And actually, ethics. I don't. I. I wouldn't necessarily equate the uh, what's legal to what's ethical. So there's many things that are legal under the law, but I would consider downright unethical. You know, uh, For example, the minimum age of you know, getting married, <laughs> for example. Uh, so, uh, in, in the current law, uh, basically teenagers could get married. And I think that's uh, uh, downright unethical. So ethics is more closer to what actions do you do that end up benefiting people rather than harming them? And there's so many kind of possible definitions. I wouldn't equate ethics with religion either. Although, uh, definitely, you can pick up uh, a thing or two from kind of the moral codes of some of the religions uh, in terms of doing the right thing. Uh, but it's not quite. It's not the dogma that religions uh, purport. So, if you take a concept like ethics, for example, and then take it broader into the field of data, uh, one observation we made. Back in 2019, as we were making our shift towards uh, social impact, is that there's a there's a there's an era shift that we're experiencing now, and you might have heard of this term. It's called the Fourth Industrial Revolution. Uh, it's a buzzword, was a buzzword. You know, nowadays you don't hear about it often enough, but I think it's it's the main change we've experienced now. Where every time you have an industrial revolution, it's usually a change in society that's underpinned by a change in technology. So, for example, the the term was first uh, bandied around by the World Economic Forum. They said there there have already been three industrial revolutions. Uh, The first was the steam uh, revolution uh, back in the, what is it, like the 1700s, I think, where steam was powering uh, ships and locomotives and that kind of Built the world as we know it today, got the world connected, you know, as opposed to just uh, sailing around on wind or human power. Now you have steam boats that shorten the travel time between countries. Uh, and then within countries, you had the emergence of railroads, locomotive railroads, uh, powered by steam engines as well. And that shortened the travel time as opposed to just being drawn by horses. That was the first industrial revolution. Second industrial revolution is electricity or electrification. So, if uh, I think, I mean, in simple terms, if you now have steam, you you basically boil water and you you know pump the steam through turbines, and then you can wrap basically a wire around the turbine and it starts uh, generating power. You know, so that's how the electric revolution started, and you have the likes of you know Thomas Edison and Nikola Tesla alternating current, direct current, kind of like that. And and people switched from kerosene lamps to electric bulbs. And that's also what created a lot of the, the common creature comforts we enjoy today, like air conditioning, washing machines, you name it, every, everything that's electrified. This, the third industrial revolution is information technology. So this is the rise of personal computers, the internet, cellular phones. Uh, and that's the revolution that you know, we're we're jumping off from uh, in the recent uh, past. So what is the fourth industrial revolution then? It, it actually looks very similar to what the third industrial revolution has. But I think the easiest way to explain the fourth industrial revolution is the abundance of data. So in the first three revolutions, data existed. But then now everything is like automatically generating data from your credit card purchases, to your social network uh, activity uh to you know the news, to you know images being uploaded on the internet. There's a lot of data, and the implication of this, as I referred to earlier, if you have a lot of data, is now algorithms can automate things uh, intelligently. So the main characteristic of the fourth industrial revolution is data, and the implication here is, whereas in the third industrial revolution, we told machines what to do. So, you know, I click a button and my slide moves forward, you know, in, in my laptop. In the fourth industrial revolution, because of data and algorithms, the machines don't need us to tell them what to do. They'll already know what to do already automatically uh, because they'll sense changes in the environment. They'll predict what you'd like to do. So, and, and you see it already happening in many areas like As I mentioned earlier, in in social media, you have algorithms that are predicting what will make you excited, and that's the information it's feeding to you. You have self-driving cars, you have robotics. So that's kind of the fourth industrial revolution. Okay, so let's bring it back to ethics. So back in 2019, we're saying, okay, the fourth industrial revolution is changing a lot of things. But are we really conscious of how this is affecting society at large? Because you can't have all the benefits without the risks. And that's why we started monitoring what are issues that we were seeing in society that was driven by data. The easiest thing you can think about now is fake news. Uh, No one ever... I mean, the term fake news actually is an oxymoron. I mean, if it's fake, then it's not news, right? But the problem with social networks primarily is because of the algorithms and the way information is shared, you can have... Pretty much false information that goes viral and people believe it, and that's one clear ethical challenge now that uh, we need to we need to watch. Like almost you know, like a few days ago, we've had social networks ban President Trump's account. Uh, that's unprecedented. Now you're you know banning a state leader, but obviously the reasons are there. You know he's inciting people to violence, and again that's you can view that uh, issue many ways. Are we now? Allow, on the one hand, we don't we don't permit demagogues, uh, you know, to incite people to violence. But on the on the other hand, are we now opening the path to basically unilateral censorship being imposed by the likes of Facebook, you know, who are private companies? Yeah, it's kind of an ethics question right there as well. Uh, I talk about data poverty. So data poverty is an interesting concept. I mean, we all know what poverty means. You know, people living below one dollar a day. You don't have any money, you know. So they they starve. You can experience that from a data perspective as well. You know, Uh, in many cases, you can't find the right data you need to solve an issue, or when you're doing research, you can't find the data that you need. Or maybe there is data, but it's not in a form that can easily be extracted or analyzed, and that has downstream effects in terms of societal issues. Like take COVID nineteen. I think there's a, a constant data poverty going on because you you're not sure if the testing data is accurate if you're gathering enough data there's a lot of undocumented cases out there asymptomatics and and that impairs the ability of uh, of of governments to respond to the to the crisis digital ownership is always a was a mainstay of the third industrial revolution but nowadays if you have basically massive vacuum cleaners of data like Google, taking every data point that you generate from your phone, from your searches. Uh, now you got to argue that data was derived from your behavior, but then that data sits in Google's data center. Do they own your data now? Or the pictures you have on Facebook, do you own those pictures? or does Facebook own them? Does Facebook have the right to use them without your knowledge? I think that's kind of the kind of the, the criteria for ownership, right? You can influence and control the usage of a thing. And we now know through the you know the revelation of the likes of Cambridge Analytica that our, our data is being used without our knowledge. Just the other day, again, uh, WhatsApp uh, issued a new terms and conditions for its users that they now need to allow their data to be shared to Facebook or they won't be able to continue Uh, you know, using the WhatsApp service. And that feels to me like an attack on our basic rights right there. Uh, Then algorithmic liabilities. I think the easiest way to explain this would be uh, there were sometime in, I don't know if it was 2018 or 2017, probably 2018, there was a, a lady by the name of Elaine Herzberg. I don't know, most of you probably never heard of her name, but you'd know about the news. So she was a biker, in Arizona who got run over by a self-driving car, uh, an Uber, and she died. Uh, and the question there is obviously the self-driving car uh, didn't detect her in time maybe, or, you know, the the brakes didn't engage on time, whatever the reason was, the challenge in that case now is who are you going to blame if let's say a self-driving car runs over Elaine? Is it the owner of the car, the person who designed the algorithm, the manufacturer? It is a very vague area, right? Because the the death or the liability arise not out of a human act, but out of an algorithm, you know, a mathematical formula basically killed someone or a computer system basically killed someone. So this, this area of algorithmic liabilities extends to uh, discrimination, obviously. Like when there was another, I think, news of, uh, I think, a black man who couldn't apply for a passport, uh, because the, the facial recognition algorithm of the of, of the U.S. passport system couldn't recognize his face, you know, and because it was trained on non-black faces, so this this whole issue of minorities, gender minorities, and ethnic minorities uh, constantly failing uh, these uh, facial recognition algorithms is a uh, is an issue of algorithmic liability and 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 discrimination, and so all of these. I would consider as data ethics problems. But I think on the on the very highest level, data ethics involves kind of three subsets of issues. First is the ethics of handling data. And this would include privacy and security and making sure people are anonymous uh, when you analyze data. So you're not compromising their their characteristics <clears throat> and making sure people are not discriminated against. Second is the concept of research ethics. So when you have all these data scientists and all these researchers using data, how do you ensure that they maintain the highest quality standards and disclose their results properly? Like you can see that also in the COVID-19 pandemic. I I think COVID-19 is our first global pandemic in a century. It's the first epidemic we have experienced during the time of social networks or social media. Like before that, there was the SARS epidemic. But that was circa 2002. We didn't even have Facebook back then. So the implication there is this is the first time we've seen a huge amount of scientific and medical information being shared openly in the social networks. And maybe 99% of people reading them don't have, don't have the foggiest clue of what they're reading. And that that for me is an ethical problem because… Uh, you're now using Facebook as a publication platform for scientific information, and some of that scientific information isn't even verified yet. Uh, but people aren't trained to do that. In academia, you submit your findings to a journal and it's peer reviewed, it takes some time before it comes out, and when it comes out, then you can now uh, kind of share it. But nowadays, you have these academics, scientists, doctors sharing findings openly online. And if you're if you didn't know any better and you in general you trust doctors and scientists, you would have fallen for some of the craziest ideas. Like I, I'm sure some of you would have remembered in the early days of the pandemic that COVID nineteen was being called a, a bioweapon, a la resident evil uh, of China. You can still hear that around in some conspiracy areas. Um uh, of course, the numerous number of COVID cures, like UV light, can kill COVID because you get a bottle, you get a can of lysol, and it has the word coronavirus written at the back. Uh, all the way down to uh, HIV, uh, is part of the COVID genome, or COVID was engineered out of HIV, and that's the reason why some of the early treatments that was uh, uh, that seem to be controlling COVID were actually anti-HIV drugs, which were retroviral drugs. So a lot of these things, if you're not really a trained doctor or scientist, you really fall for it. Uh, And I think that's part of research ethics. How do we ensure that people are protected from, you know, kind of uh, not just fake news, but also bad research and bad science. And the third and probably the most abstract portion of this is AI ethics. So as more and more artificial intelligence systems are built, and automation is implemented, you have the self-driving car killing someone or the facial recognition discriminating against ethnic minorities. How do you build systems that don't do that, protect people and keep it safe for everyone? Like very recently, UNICEF released a a proposal for uh, an AI policy for children. How do we make sure that AI doesn't harm children? Uh, and make sure we have a safe environment for children under artificial intelligence. So so it's really I, I would say very early days for this, but we thought back in 2019 when we started this uh, movement, no one's talking about it. We need to start talking about this because uh, speaking from experience, if you start studying machine learning and data science, it's really very exciting. you know, you're able to predict uh, the outcome of events, you're able to forecast, you're able to play with data and come up with interesting insights. So it's very it's endlessly, endlessly fascinating, endlessly interesting. But people forget that the moment you bring all of these tools and technologies out of the lab and into the real world, real problems can happen. And no one talks about that a lot. You know, you, you can just test it. Talk to you, anyone you know who's getting into data science and ask them, have you started thinking about the ethical problems arising from your work? And I think I would say nine out of ten times you'll get a blank. They, they are just not thinking about it. And I think that needs to change. Uh, and hopefully when, if we talk about it more uh, you know in, in podcasts and in other areas, we, we can get people to to resonate with this.
0: Where are we in terms of uh, data privacy regulation and implementation as compared to other Asian neighbors?
1: Uh you mean we as in the Philippines. So we we passed the uh, was it the Data Privacy Act in 2012? Uh, coincidentally in the same year when the data scientist article came out in hbr it's also the same year the the anti or the cyber crime prevention act was also put into put into law and i think th- those are not coincidences i think 2012 was a major inflection point in terms of uh awareness uh so we have the regulation implementation i would say couldn't be better i mean the the pandemic just worsen the situation where you have all these contact tracing forms. I don't know how it is in other countries, but you know, in, in the Philippines, if you want to get, let's say, coffee from Starbucks, you have to fill up a form, put your details in, and and God knows where that data ends up. You know, and then some some more progressive cities and, and institutions have started implementing mobile-based QR codes so that you know your movements can be tracked. That's basically, you know, surveillance. Uh, and the intention is Uh, to do contact tracing or to do preemptive isolation of cases. Uh, And again, for me, uh, I guess I have no choice but to support it. Otherwise, I won't be able to buy any coffee. But I still suspect the net benefit of all these surveillance and contact tracing versus the privacy that you're giving up, I don't think it's even close (laughs) to to being commensurate. So implementation can be improved. Uh, I don't think companies really consciously think about the privacy of their customers, especially retail customers at all. Uh, and how do we compare with ASEAN? I'm not really sure what's happening in ASEAN. I know companies that, uh, countries like Singapore take privacy very, very seriously. But of course, Singapore is Singapore and you know their regulators are usually the tightest. Uh, I don't know if things are any better in Malaysia or Indonesia. But definitely in the Philippines, it's really ground zero, and we still get breaches. Uh, so, I mean, of course, this is not privacy. It's more security, but government is generally, and I can say this in a podcast, government is generally careless when it comes to citizens' information. Uh, like, we've already had the Nth breach. Uh, like, the there's this uh, medical, medical information system that's being used by the the Philippine Department of Health called COVID kaya and faster. And this information is supposed to aggregate national data on COVID nineteen, for quarantine decisions and analysis. And I think there was this. Uh, I'm not sure if it was a Canadian firm or uh, some security outfit that did a penetration test on these fir- uh, on these uh, systems. And not only were they ab- able to breach. Uh, you know, uh, these systems. They were able to extract patient records, doctor's records. Some of the blunders were just basic, like someone uh, uh, left uh, the directory access to these websites open. So anyone can just log into these websites and view the, the source code at the back. And then one of the source code files was conveniently a file that had the password and the username of all of the admins in these sites. So little things like that. I mean, it's really not a culture yet. Uh, yeah, so it's still really early days. I think, even though the law has been around since twenty twelve, uh, it's really, it's really, it could really be uh, implemented better. I think, on the other hand, as well is, I'm wary though if people who are not familiar with data science and analytics end up enforcing the regulation. So the price we pay is we end up killing data science or we end up killing analytics as a result of stricter data privacy. So somehow there's got to be a a balance that we strike to get these kind of two opposing forces in line.
0: What works effectively well and things that we can still improve further on data analytics during the COVID-19 pandemic situation?
1: Well, I can only speak for what I've seen in the Philippines. Uh, There could be analogs uh, elsewhere. But I think... um, I've seen uh, government really fail miserably in terms of data gathering. And a lot of it is really basic stuff like getting patient records from the on-the-ground health centers and hospitals and filtering it back up to the Department of Health is a highly manual and analog process. So we, we could use better digitization there. And even at the top level, let's say you have all of this information, assuming it's accurate, as in assuming it's timely, which on both counts it's probably not. Uh, the analysis also being performed on the data couldn't be done better. Like uh, like one important metric that you've heard bandied around in twenty twenty is the so-called reproductive number or the R naught or the R t. So there's two versions of it, and people have varying interpretations of what that metric means. I think everyone generally thinks that, okay, if it's above one, it's bad. And if it's below one, it's good. But because of the mathematics and kind of uh, statistics involved, people don't have an intuitive understanding of why R0 goes above one and why it goes below one. Uh, So you can see that with kind of the randomness, at least in the Philippines case, in terms of implementing quarantines and lockdowns. I think we've had the longest lockdown anywhere in the world, almost a year already of lockdown. Some countries have already reverted back to normal, like Vietnam. Months after the first case, they put it under control. Philippines still has, on average, one to 2,000 cases a day. Uh, of course, it's lower than the United States. But again, you can probably say the U.S. has a similar problem, which is ironic for uh, a country that's supposedly advanced in terms of its data and technology, uh, but they still can't can't find a way to use that data to to get people to comply with you know simple uh, simple precautions. So these are all, I guess, a lesson that we should all learn. The problem is we're paying for that lesson in terms of human lives thousands of people have died of COVID-19 who could have otherwise survived if we were early in terms of implementing these precautions. But again, you know, I can only speak for what I've seen. Uh, it can obviously still be better. Uh, I, I did hear that com- uh, countries like Vietnam, who were already out of their quarantine in six months uh, and were pretty much COVID-free for a long time, Uh supposedly learned from their bad experience in in the early 2000s with the SARS epidemic. So those countries that went through SARS, like Taiwan and maybe, I don't know, if Korea went through it in Vietnam, uh, had already put in place, uh, I would say, more robust health systems and surveillance. So their health departments are used to that. Uh, And countries that never went through SARS are now learning it the hard way for the first time. So I hope so because uh, at this rate, if another global pandemic occurs, I don't think you know economies will 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 survive. You know, with more lockdowns. So that's always a it's 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 a bad trade off. But you know, it's the trade off that every country faces. How much of your economy are you willing to burn to save more lives? Even though you you can you can probably argue that health is part of your economy, but. That's kind of the major decision being made by governments. Like if we shut down to put the pandemic under control, we end up killing businesses. And that's already happened in the Philippines, you know. I, I think sometime in the middle of 2020, the Trade Department ran a survey and found that as much as one out of four businesses had closed down or planning to close down during the pandemic. And I think we had record record high unemployment. Our GDP growth was negative double digits. So these are unprecedented economic numbers. We've never seen behavior like this before, at least uh, you know while we were alive. Maybe it's comparable to kind of the world wars in terms of their impact, but it's a very different kind of war we're, we're, we're feeling right now. It's an interesting, really an interesting time. And again, uh, just to add to that, I think COVID-19 is also part of the fourth industrial revolution. We never expected a virus Uh, or a pandemic to be the one that would encourage companies to start moving into the digital space, uh, work from home and all that. But again, that's what revolutions are all about. They're unpredictable. And I I think it's really just fitting that a global pandemic is what's encouraging companies now to digitize and automate stuff that they otherwise wouldn't have done if COVID didn't strike.
0: It is often mentioned that data is the new fuel and digitalization is the new engine how do you think we can sustain its uh, economic relevance
1: i think the the basic question like in in a company that you need to ask is before you get into any of these fancy uh, technologies or fancy tools is what what really is your business objective Uh, and these are not really rocket science objectives. These are simple things. Are you there to grow revenue, uh, manage costs, control losses, you know, optimize your capital allocation, increase your market share? So it's very, very business centric, but in a way it translates across the board to any organization, even in the public sector. So what are your objectives? And you can't say all of the above. you got to make, make a decision to focus on one. If you try to Grow revenue and control costs at the same time. You end up paying both because guess what? You need to spend some money to grow your revenue. You spend on marketing and advertising. So, a control cost and an increased revenue kind of uh, objective will be self defeating and so on and so forth. You know, you can't grow your market share and increase revenue simultaneously. I mean, they overlap at some level, but one of the fastest ways to get more customers is to give rebates and discounts. And that actually reduces your revenue and doesn't increase it. So these are you know, decision-making that you need to be making even before the data question comes in. Now, having made a decision on, okay, we're here to grow revenue, then that's where you now need to look at, okay, so what data do we need to do that? Do we know where our revenue is coming from? Do we know how we're pricing things? Do we know how to uh, improve that? Can we measure the impact of, let's say, a uh, a new product or a new service offering in terms of getting people to sign up? Do we know which where you know where where our services are more popular than others? Do we know how our competitors are doing? So many of these business questions actually have a data component, and I think that's where data really shines. If you have a problem you want to solve, there's often a data point that A, you've already gathered, or B, you should be gathering to solve that question. In the social impact sector, we actually have a slightly different mantra. We say social problems are data problems, and that's very, very true. Like COVID-19 is as much a data problem uh, as it is a, a social problem, or the problem of fake news. These are all data problems as well. So, To make sure we sustain the relevance of data is every time we make a discussion around data, we need to be sure that it's contextualized with respect to kind of the uh, the underlying problem. I, I think that's really all there is to it. And as with anything, like if you run a manufacturing company, you need to invest in machines, you need to invest in laborers, you need to invest in warehouses the same is true for data data is not a magical thing that just appears out of nowhere you need to make investments in skills in technology in 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 people uh, if you're going to train people that's an investment or if you're going to you know hire these graduates of this big data and data science degrees some of them will be coming in at a premium compared to people who did not that's just a you know that's just a, the 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 necessary evil, if you if you if you will, of getting into new you know a new method, and you can decide to ignore it. I mean, you're perfectly fine. You know, it's perfectly acceptable for you not to get into data. But I, I think the the analog would be in COVID nineteen. If you were not ready for, uh you know, online transactions, online payments, and you were still pretty much paper based, like many companies I I know, then you wouldn't be able to operate. The only option is to shut down. I think that's how stark the I would say the the urgency is. I, I remember someone saying there are only three companies in the fourth industrial revolution: companies that are already digital, companies that are in the process of becoming digital, and companies that won't exist. <laughs> so there's no you know there's no option for. Uh, analog uh, or non-digitized companies in this new era. And I, th- I think we're already seeing that little by little, more and more companies are moving online in in more tr- in a, in a more massive trend compared to the original dot-com bubble back in the early 2000s. That was kind of like very third industrial revolution. Now, it's almost a given. If you don't have an online presence, you don't exist. And I think the trend will just continue.
0: Given your wealth of experience on data science and analytics, what advice would you give the business organizations and academic institutions presently engaged on this type of digital initiative?
1: So, uh, the because I've I've been in both, so I'll start with the schools, academic institutions. I think, uh, especially in developing markets, Philippines, for example, your biggest gap is training you don't have the teachers that can teach data science. You may have statistics professors, computer science professors, business professors, but to turn them into data science uh, practitioner or uh, lecturers, they need to start talking to each other and fusing experience from the industry. In fact, in the master's degree that I helped co-develop, we had practitioners Coming back from industry to teach in school, and I think that doesn't come without cost. Obviously, uh, you know the average, you know, teacher wage compared to you know practitioners is really far. So, uh, but you w- you will find people willing to take that pay cut, if only for the love of teaching. But they'll be very few. I think at some point schools will have to realize that they have to pony up the money to start getting experienced teachers to come in, and that trend will just continue because. Uh, There's the flip side as well is the moment someone learns these skills, they become so attractive and competitive for jobs that the last thing in their mind is to go back to school and be a teacher with a few exceptions. So that's going to be the the ongoing struggle for academic institutions given this whole trend towards data and digitization. For business organizations, as I mentioned earlier, I think you should just use the COVID-19 pandemic as your as your template, as your trigger. Could you have functioned without online payments? Could you have functioned without work from home uh, and video conferencing? Uh, I doubt, you know? So if you're still pretty much the brick and mortar type of uh, company or your institution heavily relies on analog and paper processes, I would just get the ball rolling and digitize that as fast as possible. It's easier said than done. It's actually arguably easier to set up a completely new company that's already digital, a digital native, than to rebuild a previously brick and mortar company into a, into a digital one. And in much much the same way, the you know these kinds of uh, upheavals occurred every time we switched from one industrial revolution to another. So when imagine even the rail industry where you had locomotives driven by steam and then suddenly it was shifting to diesel and then now you have electric trains you know the first movers are always rewarded eventually because they, they saw a new trend coming and even with the use of computers you know uh the third industrial revolution was the personal computer era before that computers were big uh you know big uh, rooms and it Took the efforts of companies like Apple and Microsoft and you know IBM to translate that into computers that can fit on your on your desk, and then now in your pocket with your cell phones. Uh, the people, ah, I remember this distinctly. Like remember the, I think this some happened sometime in the 90s when people were using pagers a lot. A lot of pagers. Like I remember we had a pocket bell, easy call, and these pagers, and and you had to call an operator to send a message, and then suddenly. Uh, GSM 2G technology allowed transmission of messages automatically through a phone. And I remember, I kid you not when I say this, uh, at that time when there was a shift, people were actually resistant to it and saying, why would I, I have to type my own message when I can just call an operator out up and just send a message easily. So imagine that. So nowadays it would be like stupid if you had to call someone to send a message. You just tap it out and, it, and you're not even sending it through the traditional SMS channel anymore. You have all these messaging apps uh, you know that, that can do it for you uh, at no incremental cost. So I mean that's just the point. Like every time you'll have these technological upheavals, you just have to make a decision. Does this support my business uh, strategy? And can I exist with or without this technology? Uh, and I think when it's an industrial revolution at stake, it's more often than not a pervasive thing. Like you cannot not be a data company in the fourth industrial revolution. At some level, you need to be aggregating data and analyzing it uh, because the competitive disadvantage of not doing that is just so massive. You know, your competitors are just going to eat you uh, if, if you're not doing it. Uh, so that's slowly dawning on companies now.
0: Apart from data analytics initiatives that you're working on, what are the other activities that you are currently preoccupied with as well as forthcoming events that you would like to share with our podcast listening audience? And what are the most convenient way of reaching out or contacting you?
1: Yeah, I'll start with the last question first. So uh, I'm quite active on Twitter. So I don't have a Facebook account. My company is on Facebook. So you can reach me at Twitter, docligot, Got D O C. L-I-G-O-T, come follow me, I'll follow you back. And I usually tweet about things related to data and data ethics. Um, Please also follow uh, Serolytics on Facebook and on Twitter, uh, and also Data Ethics. So on Twitter, it's EthicsPH, and on Facebook, it's it's uh, Ethics.ph. And we announce events. Uh, We also have a Data Ethics podcast, actually, uh, wouldn't mind having you on one of those, by the way, <laughs> uh, Edgar. If you want to talk about that, uh, and uh, at the same time, um, what it's it's my my time is really basically split between these two. If I'm not doing social impact work with serolytics, I'm uh, heavily lobbying on data ethics, and I guess by extension, the Analytics Association of the Philippines very closely, uh, and. Right now, we have an ongoing uh, datathon or data challenge. It's a hackathon. Uh, We've been running it since November. The deadline is on the 24th of January. Uh, It's called the BARM Data Challenge. BARM stands for Bangsamoro Autonomous Region of Muslim Mindanao. So it's an area in the southern part of the Philippines that's generally historically been rife with uh, armed conflict and only recently has reorganized itself Uh, So there's a BARM uh, transition government, and they're looking to basically build their predominantly Muslim society there. And the interesting part of the BARM is back in 2016 or 2017, uh, organizations like uh, the UK FCO and the Asia Foundation started putting together an open data set about the BARM. You know, At that time, it was still called the ARM, A-R-M-M, the Autonomous Region of Muslim Mindanao. And you started aggregating open data on various things, economic data, socioeconomic data, education data, road networks, maps. And the point of that uh, exercise was to have an open data set that the future uh, BARM can use uh, and also people and citizens can also use that data set to learn more about their area. And in Late 2019, about a year ago, we decided to run a hackathon on top of that. Like, hey, look, there's an open data set here. Why don't you play with it? Come up with solutions to solve the issues of the Barm, uh, and we were pleasantly surprised at the quality of the entries. We got 16 prototypes. We awarded three, uh, and that was very successful. That's really and and remember, this is an this is in a region of the Philippines that was known for armed conflict. And now it's now the kind of the the ground zero for, I would say, a tech renaissance, a data renaissance. People are starting to think about how to use data for, uh, you know, social impact. So a year later, twenty twenty, uh, November twenty twenty, uh, we started working with USAID and the Asia Foundation to do a, a second, uh, you know, do a reboot of this. And now, the Barm government itself is backing this initiative. And we've had tremendous response since then. We now have more than, I would say triple the number of entries we had in the first exercise. Really excited to judge it. The first round is still open. It'll be open until the 24th of Jan and then we'll uh, do a short list. And the finalists will get to present their work in February and get judged and there'll be cash prizes. But at the same time, I mean, the cash prizes aside, this is really one of the, I would say the most direct ways you can participate in basically uplifting the situation of the people in the BARM. So the thematic areas include education, poverty alleviation, uh, building better institutions, moral governance, of course health, especially COVID-19. And you can propose anything you want. you can do a date, you can be a data journalist, write an article based on the data that you found. You can be a data scientist or an analyst. you can put together a predictive model or a dashboard or an analysis. About the situation in the Barm on these themes, you can be an app developer and create an app or uh, a software solution that can help you know fix things, automate things. Uh, you know it's fair game as long as you use the open data sets. You can free you're free to add additional data of your own. It's really a great venue to kind of flex your skills and interest. And so far, we've have we've had nothing but positive reviews about it. So we're really looking forward to judging it. And we're doing this under the umbrella of data ethics as well, as a way of encouraging people to pursue social impact through data.
0: We've learned so many things today, it's quite remarkable indeed. And with that, we would like to express our great appreciation to Doc for sharing us his valuable insights on data science and analytics. All the best to you and Serialytics and more successful data initiatives in the future.
1: Yeah, thank you very much. And, you know, I hope to be, uh, hope to join you again in maybe a future topic where we can, you know, flesh out more of these concepts. Like I'm sure, uh, hopefully some of your listeners would have been interested in the topic of data ethics and using uh, data for social good. So I I just wanna share our mantra, uh, data rights are human rights. And social problems are data problems. So these are, I think, the mantras for the fourth industrial revolution.
0: Very well said. Thanks so much for joining us on Circle. And we're looking forward to having you again in our future episode. possible by analytics, We would like to express our sincere gratitude to Dominic Doc Liggett on sharing us his exceptional views and perspectives regarding the essentials of data science and analytics. Like to hear from you. Share us your thoughts regarding our topics, and send us a message on the Anchor Voice message box. Your message could end up on our future podcast episodes. Make sure you never miss any episodes of Fin Circle by clicking the subscribe button or follow us on. Spotify Google Podcast Breaker Radio Public Pocket Cast Overcast iTunes and Anchor FM This concludes our podcast episode today Thanks for listening on Twin Circle Angelus. Let's catch up again soon.